Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Campbell A. Campbell. On the show this week, it's Tom Holland versus the multiverse in Spider-Man No Way Home, George Clooney's in the director's chair for The Tender Bar, and in Film Club, it's Satoshi Kon's festive anime gem, Tokyo Godfathers. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Cambole. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, particularly in geeky circumstances like this. And even this week, we have anime. It's a dream come true. <laughs> in the for running, me. I've been petitioning you all for ages. <laughs> How are you doing? How's the, how's December going for you? The run up to Christmas and New Year. Um, pretty good. Um, would it surprise you that I've been doing the BFI Japan season? Um, would not surprise. I've been making more cinema trips than recently and now i'm probably gonna have to dial that back because of variants but Mm -hmm. um generally been seeing stuff that i like and stuff that i don't have to write about which is nice (laughs) that is wonderful any any highlights any specific films you've mentioned um i went to see akira for the billionth time but in the imax um i believe that friend of the podcast jake was there (laughs) um Mm -hmm. i took my younger brother as well who had seen as he tells me, half of the movie. But um, he was like, he told me that he felt himself checking out and going to sleep. So he's just like, I'm just going to like stop the film and then we're going to go watch it like somewhere important. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, come along. <laughs> um, and that was really amazing. If I, I have, I, yeah, I, it might be too overwhelming for me. That is a film, particularly when you know that the entire thing is hand-drawn. <laughs> the pain that shoots up my arm <laughs> in certain sequences. I'm sure in IMAX, a film like Akira would be incredible oh i'm very jealous you got to see that just looking at the motorbike chase and just being like damn that must have sucked <laughs> <laughs> but it's so beautiful <laughs> hannah how are you doing how are things at little white lies towers yeah good they're, they're hectic you know run up to christmas is always a busy time lots of end of year content to finish and then our next issue goes to print tomorrow so yeah, it's a crazy time. I can't say any more than that about the next issue. But the end of year stuff hopefully will be coming out in the beginning of next week, just in time for Christmas. Uh, still waiting to hear when I can watch The Matrix. That would be great. Probably going to be 
at home on my couch on Christmas Day at this rate. Uh, but yeah, you know, can't, can't complain. <laughs> End of year content. It's always fun. But that's very exciting to hear about a new issue on its way. Will that be announced in the new year then or will you sneak it in before? I believe we're aiming to announce it on January 1st. You know, a nice little new year, new issue. Uh, type thing but it all depends on you know printers and Mm -hmm. obviously with the kind of new restrictions we're not sure how long it'll take to get it printed or anything so uh watch this space i suppose let the speculation commence about what the film is going to be listeners send in your theories and your takes to the usual channels at lw lies on twitter about what the cover film of the next issue, the first issue of 2022, will be. But before we get to 2022, we have new releases still to come, still to talk about, including a very big one that many pundits are saying is going to save cinema again, Spider-Man No Way Home. For the first time in the cinematic history of Spider-Man, our friendly neighbourhood hero's identity is revealed, bringing his superhero responsibilities into conflict with his normal life and putting those he cares about most at risk. When he enlists Doctor Strange's help to restore his secrets, the spell tears a hole in their world, releasing the most powerful villains who've ever fought a Spider-Man in any universe. Now, Peter will have to overcome his greatest challenge yet, which will not only forever alter his own future, but the future of the multiverse. So, Camberley, let's skirt around spoilers as much as possible. <laughs> I've not had a chance to see this film yet, still hoping to uh, preserve some surprises. But this has been touted as the multiverse coming to Spider-Man. We know there are returning villains from previous Spider-franchises. Is this something we should be excited about? I can neither confirm nor deny that because of the risk of spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, starting off the bat with the whole um, multiverse thing, um, I don't think that Sony slash Marvel has done itself any favours by doing this in such recent proximity to um, Into the Spider-Verse, which Mm. everyone has kind of accepted as the superior Spider-Man movie of recent years. Um, I think that um, there comes with it a sort of scale that I don't think suits this version of Spider-Man very well um, compared to something like into the Spider-Verse, which uses that multiversal circumstance to play around with aesthetics and the aesthetics of comic books specifically. Like you have things like the Kirby Crackle, which is like dots that are um, representing like cosmic energy. There's um, it's playing with four color print dots and the textures of comic books and stuff. Whereas this looks like another MCU Spider-Man movie. It doesn't use the opportunity to play with aesthetics as so much as it uses the chance to, as you said, reintroduce a bunch of villains that we recognise. It's not a spoiler to say that um, we see the likes of Alfred Molina return as Dr. Octopus, we see Willem Dafoe return as the Green Goblin, and to his credit, 100% commit to it. Um, We see Electro, Jamie Foxx's Electro, we see the Lizard, and we see the Sandman, and it's not quite the Sinister Six, which is annoying because I had a whole thing about calling them a sim- the Sympathetic Six because this <laughs> film takes... I think one of the main interesting things that this film does is take a more pa- compassionate 
approach to them, which is interesting. The one interesting thing that they do about bringing all these people back into the mix. Um, I'm sure that people who like the MCU are excited about everyone coming back into the fold, but for me, it feels like... Um, I don't know, the, the drill tweet where it's like thinking about things I recognise and smiling. <laughs> right. And that feels like the era we're in, in a certain part of mainstream filmmaking where there's a reboot or a sequel or a long-awaited revival where it really is just, hey, remember that thing in the 1980s? Remember that thing in the 90s? Remember that thing in the 2000s? And this is, I suppose... The, the, the worry for me, having only seen the pre-release marketing material, is that it's like, hey, the dads in the room or the the adults in the room remember being kids, seeing Spider-Man 1, 2, and maybe 3 um, with, when Raimi did them, and now the kids have Tom Holland, and well, let's just forget a bit about the stuff in the middle. But So if, if, if you say that since the Spider-Verse was very creative in the way that it used its multiverse, is it just more about nostalgia in this one or does it build to something bigger than that it, um, we... I think it hitches it to um, some clever I don't know some clever gags <laughs> um, you'll, ha you'll have like villains trading war stories and things about um, what happened to them there's a good gag about um, sort of supervillain origins um, there is some substance to it in that um, it interrogates what um, Spider-Man would do had he the chance to um, do things over and give his enemies a second chance effectively, which is kind of what kicks the whole fiasco off and it gets it starts getting chaotic because he doesn't do the pragmatic thing, he does the compassionate thing. And I thought that much was interesting. There, it's The multiversal concept doesn't really do anything for um, Tom Holland's version of Spider-Man personally. That much comes from his um, circumstances around his identity, which is maybe the first time that these films have actually done the the main sort of classic tension of being Spider-Man, which is uh, not being able to have a personal life at the same time as uh, managing those great responsibilities. But it does it at such a scale that feels alienating rather than personable. Um, mm. And I don't think that these films have given Tom Holland a chance to really define what his take on Spider-Man is compared to the others, especially when you have all of these old reminders of the past showing up and this film effectively saying, hey, we're going to bring all these people back, but do them better. And that makes our version of Spider-Man like the best one. <laughs> it sort of um, has this strange approach to, um, I don't know, it's this impulse to fix the past, which the film comments on itself, but it's also prescribing to that at the same time like um the maybe the most non-spoilery example i can give you is that as soon as the green goblin turns up he smashes his mask almost in response to people on the internet saying man that mask was terrible wasn't it and i'm and right i guess on one hand you know they're they're like sure i guess that's one way to explore how defoe would do the character had you had the chance to do it again but it just also has this sort of snideness and sense of superiority built in that I don't find very appealing. Um, mm. That's that's really intriguing. And what intrigues me is how this film operates as a Tom Holland Spider-Man film. Because I like Tom Holland. I think he's been good when the films have allowed him to be. But since he kind of came onto the scene in Civil War, which is an amazing sequence in its own right when he's first introduced, he's just been passed between 
father figure type characters from the wider MCU. And in this one, it just feels like they're cramming it with lots of other legacy characters and, you know, big performers if you're having Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina in there. So it, it's, it feels like they're not giving him much space to define the character himself. Hannah, what, what do you make of Tom Holland and, and, and this film in general? Yeah, so I um, was a Raimi kid, kind of kickstarted my interest in comic books. Um, so, you know, I've always had in the back of my mind, like, I, I kind of vested interest in Spider-Man films. And I even really like Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. I mean, yes, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is one of the most heinous things ever done to a cinema screen but I do think that Toby uh, Andrew and Tom are all good in their own right but yeah as you, as you just said I think that these the problem with Tom is that he's really hamstrung by these films and their relentless need for world building and even in the case of this film where it's not like they're trying to build out the the MCU further although we do have Benedict Cumberbatch just there as always like doing his Doctor Strange thing and kind of an indication that uh, maybe Peter's best friend Ned is also magic now. I don't think that's a big spoiler. It's a little spoiler, but not nothing major. Um, but yeah, obviously like in this one, it's the idea of bringing in all these other characters and all these other bits of IP into the fold. And it doesn't seem to serve any purpose other than really like jamming down on that nostalgia button. And people love like people love seeing something they recognize at the cinema as proven by the kind of rapturous response to Ghostbusters Afterlife, which again, like one of the worst films I've seen in recent memory. And um, it was I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't excited when I saw certain characters appear because I was and I was like, oh, this is fun. And, you know, Willem Dafoe going hell for leather again on a little hoverboard is very entertaining um, and Alfred Molina fully admitting that he's only here for the paycheck is very entertaining but uh, the more I thought about this film because I had to review it for the website the more angry I got about it and I'm not in the habit of getting angry about these superhero movies but it's taken them three films now with Tom Holland to get the, to the point that it took Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire one film to get to where he realizes fundamentally my personal life is incompatible with Spider-Man. And I'm like, how has it taken you three films to realize this? Especially because the last film was kind of about that as well. Cause he wanted to have this nice normal vacation, but ended up having to fight Mysterio. And it just, it's like he's stuck in this thing of arrested development and the, the filmmakers don't know how to kind of move on or explore other things that might be interesting about, Peter's character and that's kind of what makes me think they don't really know not just Tom but um, John and the screenwriters don't really know what this version of Peter is like what the cell is and I think it's this indication that the Marvel cinematic universe has too many characters for its own good and it doesn't have the resources or maybe even the interest in like actually fleshing them out and it seems weird to me that like you've got someone like um Wonder, Wonder Maximov in WandaVision, who I think going into that series, people who weren't familiar with her character from the comics probably didn't know anything about her, but she's become this very beloved figure. Whereas Spider-Man, I feel like I still don't know anything about him outside of, yeah, he's uh, he can shoot webs and he loves his girlfriend. 
And, you know, it's like, I, I just think it's, I, I would like more out of, after three films. That's a significant amount of time. Think, I mean, I know they were longer, but think about Lord of the Rings. Like, think about where we were at the end of three Lord of the Rings films. I just, I, yeah. it kind of baffles me. It's, it's, it's that great irony that um, it's the Marvel superhero that isn't made by Disney and Marvel, that's made by Sony, that is in some ways most a pawn within the larger MCU universe. And particularly, you know, with the Iron Man cameos or how Far From Home was so so much about what you know the, the morning of the death of Tony Stark, spoilers for many years ago. But and and then now there's this weight of legacy both towards the MCU but also towards the previous films. It just feels like currently Spider Man can't exist on his own and there's there's certainly a strong voice within the fandom that thinks that Spider-Man should stand apart from the MCU because as a character and as a storytelling tradition works best alone rather than in an ensemble perhaps so it's it's tricky um I'd, before we wrap up on this this has been a, a really crazy stacked year for Marvel related properties with four feature films and all, you know as many TV series as well and not necessarily a banner year for them, maybe. Not many home runs, with, uh, either at the box office or critically. And so, Campbell, where do you think this lands in relation to the other films and um, and maybe the TV series? Uh, quick admission, this is the only Marvel movie I've watched this year. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, that's that's because you're not going to the cinema? Or no, I just, I've seen things. I'm just not seeing Marvel movies anymore. I've, like, yeah. It's like I've broken up with them. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I wish um, I had that. Which is um, feels strange because when I was a lot younger, I mean, I've been watching a lot of these films since I was, God, I don't know, 15? I don't know how, I don't know. But um, I've gotten tired of them. And I think it is because of something that this uh, film represents in that the, a lot of them are not allowed to have their own identity. It's a revolving door of cameos a lot of the time. It's constant setup for the next thing. And it's just gotten so exhausting for me. Um, and I don't know I can't compare it to anything else I've only really got the TV shows as a frame of reference um, but I'd kind of I'd put these below them um, with the exception of um, Captain America and the Winter Soldier which sucks <laughs> <laughs> I've got this picture now of you recreating the John Romita uh, cover of Spider-Man No More, but it's your Marvel fan no more <laughs> in the alleyway and he's got like, a pile of DVDs in a trash can. <laughs> Smashing his mask in the alleyway. <laughs> but, but Hannah, you, you, you have been on, on this podcast and reviewed for Little White Lies a few of these films, so what, particularly Eternals, etc. So where do you think this ranks alongside those? Yeah, um, I think Eternals, I mean, I wasn't hot on Eternals, as, as we know, but I think Eternals is probably the better one they've of the four they've had this year I, I think this is probably a step above Black Widow which I thought was disgraceful and then maybe Shang-Chi and then what else did we have just this and uh, Eternals yeah okay yeah. I'm losing track um in terms of TV I've only watched the only one I've watched all the way through was Loki and I did like Loki and I think that kind of deals in similar territory, although that's like timeline variants, but it's basically multiverses. It's all the same thing with a different name, which I really enjoyed up until the final episode, which I thought was garbage. Um, 
the other series don't really I don't have any interest in Hawkeye um Hawkeye or <laughs> I just can't stand the thought of looking at Jeremy Renner's face for that long I just tap out after about like 30 minutes with that man can't deal with it um but yeah I mean I just I keep saying oh I'm not interested in this anymore and yet here I am every week I feel like if you're a film <laughs> critic you have to kind of at least take a passing interest and I because it was such a big part of my childhood and I love comics so much, you know, I I, I do kind of, there'll always be a part of me that's kind of wanting to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. But my God, I'm sick of like having to talk about it and then de- defend my opinion from like rabid fans. It's crazy the way people, some, res- some people respond to this film, these films. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'm still, <laughs> I'm still in the bag for this. I'm looking forward to watching. <laughs> Sorry, <Man>. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to watching spider-man um as soon as i it's healthy and safe to <laughs> uh, maybe after christmas into the new year maybe but let's put some scores on spider-man no way home campbell i'll come to you first this is in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect um in anticipation three because um no matter how much i've kind of shaken free of these movies uh spider-man is a childhood favorite so i'll probably always show up for the character um Enjoyment 3 again, um, I had a lot of mixed feelings during it, but um, <laughs> it's funny having knowing you're having those nostalgia buttons pushed and then kind of just being like, well, I can't not feel anything about this because there are just icons from my childhood that I do mean a lot to me that I'm seeing again. And there is kind of an undeniable pleasure in that in retrospect too, because um, the whole thing's a mess and bringing in those characters that I love so much actually only highlighted that it has no real identity of its own. Which is funny because it's about his secret identity, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, what are your scores? Uh, yeah, same. 3-3-2. Three, three, I think, I thought, I, when I came out, I thought it was a 3-2-3. Three, two, three, but, like I say, the more I've sat with this, the more frustrated I'm getting with the fact they have this amazing character. And I do think Spider-Man's a great character. And the world around Spider-Man, I think, is amazing. They have some iconic villains, Um and even villains who are great, who we've not really dug into in the kind of cinematic universe, but they just don't know what they're doing. I truly believe they don't know what they're doing. They can't treat him as his own thing, and it's disappointing, and you hate to see yeah. it. Well, that's a shame, but Hannah will have to create the Hawkeye without Hawkeye cut of the TV series. Let's <laughs> a shot of Jeremy Renner so you can watch that and report back. I say bring <laughs> Stiltman into Spider-Man, then these things will really get going. <laughs> and Craven. We'll have to do Craven at some point. They're doing Craven. We're getting an Aaron Taylor Johnson Craven the Hunter movie. No. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be great. He's not got a barrel barrel enough chest for me. <laughs> okay. Like just turning up a big dial. <laughs> well, no. More for chest. me, Craven. Craven has to have the uh, the chest that Khan has in Wrath of Khan. So so big that you think it's fake. <laughs> It's just, it's just a That's shame that Jason Momoa has already got prior commitments, isn't it? Fair enough. Oh, yes. man, Listeners, there you have it. Spider-Man No Way Home in cinemas right now. Let us know what you make of it at the usual channels. At LW Lies on Twitter. Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com. Up next, we're heading to The Tender Bar. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Tender Bar tells the story of J.R., a fatherless boy growing up in the glow of the bar tended by his uncle Charlie. As J.R.'s determined mother struggles to provide her son with opportunities denied to her and leave the dilapidated home of her outrageous, if begrudgingly supportive father, J.R. begins to pursue his romantic and professional dreams with one foot persistently placed in Uncle Charlie's bar. So there we have it. That's the plot for The Tender Bar. Hannah, please introduce this to us. This is, um, w- w- what's the vibe of this film then? Um, oh, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it really. It's like the Wonder Years, but in a bar, I guess, is how, <laughs> I would, how you would maybe describe this. Um, yeah, it's, you know, George Clooney likes to make a movie every now and again, and they are... Usually not very good, bless his heart. It's good that he tries. Um, and I, this kind of popped up at the London Film Festival. I think people didn't really know that he'd made another movie. Um, ben Affleck, always kind of a draw. And I think um, people are kind of in the bag because Clooney and Affleck are such good mates and it's kind of nice and charming to see them working together. But it's, yeah, it's based on a memoir um, by J.R. Moringer, who I haven't, I didn't really know anything about. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize, Wikipedia tells me. Um, but yeah, so it's basically about him growing up in the kind of um, shadow of this very gregarious family, trying to make it as a writer. And the first half of it, it is, um, he's played by this young actor, Daniel Ranieri, who is really great. He's so good. I've seen a lot of child actors this year. We talked about this on the Come On, Come On episode, but he's he's so funny and has this like great rapport with Ben Affleck. It's just really charming to watch. But then Ty Sheridan takes over and the film really, <laughs> really uh, <laughs> kind of peters out. Um, it just becomes this very kind of generic story of I'm a young writer in America and I want to live the American dream and marry the girl of my dreams and it just 
yeah, I don't know. I was just so kind of bored throughout the second half. It also had a lot of secondhand embarrassment because the character is fundamentally like very cringe and very kind of like, I want to be a writer, but it's like, okay, but, but why? Why, mm. why do you want to be a writer? And why do you think you've earned that? <laughs> Which um, as, as writers, I think we all kind of <laughs> have seen many characters like this uh, in real life who just how well, they, they really desire to be a writer, but kind of don't have any voice. And um, I think the best thing you can say for this film is that the performances that Ben Affleck and um, Christopher Lloyd give are very kind of entertaining and compelling. Christopher Lloyd is great as like crotchety, crotchety old grandpa, very like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory <laughs> grandpa vibes. Um, but overall, it is just another kind of weird Clooney passion project that probably wouldn't have made it to screen if it wasn't for George Clooney, like really trying very hard. Um, but yeah, I was not not a fan of this one. Well, we we can come back to George Clooney and his filmography at the end, but tell me about Ben Affleck in this role. Because last time we spoke about Ben Affleck, I suppose it was in our Fincher specials when we were talking about Gone Girl and how there was this this conflict behind Ben Affleck, this sort of charm he has, but you know that there's something off about him and he plays that really well. But what's he doing here is in this film? Where does this land on the Ben Affleck scale? He's playing, he's playing this wise old uncle figure, um, who owns this bar and is kind of a womanizer and I don't know it's a strange kind of role because I think you're waiting for the the other shoe to drop and for something to kind of happen to Uncle Charlie or um, because I guess like the implication is that he maybe has a problem with his drinking certainly JR has a problem with his drinking and there's a whole very awkward scene on a train where he meets a priest and uh, JR's like got a bottle of vodka or gin with him or something and the priest kind of does a like hmm face um but ben in this it's a it's a strange role for him especially considering like his history with alcoholism which he's been really really open about and um if you remember listeners he was in a film called the the way back or finding the way back which was about an alcoholic basketball coach who kind of finds redemption it's like uh, these kids are teaching me kind of film. Um, but it was actually very good and he was really great in that film and I would highly recommend it if you have a spare uh, hour, hour and a half, however long it was. But yeah, so it's a strange kind of role for him because he doesn't really have much to do other than be a charming father figure for this um, disenfranchised young boy. But he is like, you know, it kind of reminds you why Ben Affleck was such a superstar throughout the 90s and early noughties, because he can really turn on the charm. And in a way that isn't like Gone Girl, where you're just kind of like, he's got the dead eyes of a killer. <laughs> um, he actually genuinely kind of lights up the screen and really brings this sort of levity and this grace, which I really love to see, because I do think that Ben is um, actually a really great actor when he kind of gets the chance. But it's strange that in a film like this um, that wants so desperately Ty Sheridan's character to be the main character, the one you're drawn to is Uncle Charlie, who's just a more interesting guy and clearly has got like a thousand war stories. And you almost wish that it was just about him and, you know, them kind of hanging out and stuff rather than it kind of going off on this whole thing where JR's trying to get an internship at the New, at, at the New York Times. Um, but yeah, so it makes a good case, for, I think, for the return of uh, Ben Affleck to 
uh, proper movies. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on Athlete, Campbell? Um, well, I guess I'd start off by saying that this film has better Uncle Ben content than even the Spider-Man movie <laughs> this week. Um, <laughs> uh, as Hannah said, he's really charming. Um, it is strange that it doesn't engage with this meta text around him because he is a literal bartender who spends most of his day with like a bunch of lushes who are his mates. So, but there's no real um, engagement there, or with you know the more interesting figures surrounding Jr which is his whole family. And it sort of, when it veers off on that solitary path, I agree, again, agree with Hannah that it sort of loses its way. Um, which is funny because it's this film about a writer, which makes the writer seem like he has bad instincts. <laughs> Just in, by telling the story that way, it gives us more like an hour, a good hour of stuff that we really aren't interested in. Um, but um, Affleck is, at least an anchor throughout because it repeatedly returns to him in the bar and it's uh he becomes this steadying presence in more ways than one just within the text of the film and to us as well because they're like oh finally we can go hang out in the bar again um because he has got all he's got these tall tales and he's got what he refers to as the men's sciences uh and he's like trying to teach this boy like um how to grow up responsibly even though he himself has seemingly not which I guess is something that you could take away as something of a uh, soft engagement with, um, I don't know, Affleck's own persona, like um, just as like an actor who's been around the block for a bit. Um, I don't know. It feels like a, um, I don't know. It feels it feels like a nice and sort of steady role for him, but just nothing really electric because the film doesn't give him that chance. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the highlights, like most of the things I remember about the film are surrounded that just the hanging out in the bar or when they go out and go on a little drive. Um, and the film even holds back what seems like it could have what could have been its best scene uh, for the end credits. And it's just like this random clip of um, Affleck teaching the kid how to drive. And I'm just like, I really wish I could have seen more of this relationship between the two because it just the elliptical approach just hamstrings it very early on and deprived us of more Affleck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think Hannah summed it up better than me in terms of like how the film actually approaches him. It just... I don't know that um, Clooney has very good instincts as a filmmaker. It just turns it into sort of a parody of a Sundance film. Yeah, so to wrap up, why is George Clooney making a film like this? And what what is the George Clooney-ness of this film? Because you look back at his filmmaking career and clearly you can see a few films that are political in intense. Good Night and Good Luck, The Ides of March. He clearly loves newspaper men. He talks about that a lot because of his father and you know, uh, being brought up by a newspaper man, an old school guy. He also loves these sort of nostalgic stories you know, of, of Americana, the the American football film he made, and um, Monuments Men, the war movies. But he also just loves giving, having fun with his actor friends. Um, <laughs> so where does the tender bar land within all that? And can we find the George Clooney? Is this his dad movie? I guess this hits all of those notes because, I mean, it starts and ends on the open road, <laughs> that which feels very uh, American to me. Steely Dan playing. Um, <laughs> um, when it situates itself in the office, it uh, in the newspaper office, it doesn't really um, feel uh, like it has time to fully immerse itself in that world. So it kind of seems to, like, it grabs all of these different bits from Clooney's sort of oeuvre and never really makes them gel together because it's taking so little of each. You don't spend very much time in the newspaper office. You don't spend very much time 
out in the American country. It just sort of feels caught between all of that. Yeah, I um I poor Clooney in a way. Um not really, he's very rich and very successful. But um <laughs> it's strange that he's he started off his directing career with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Good Night and Good Luck, which I think are great, great movies. Uh even like not with that caveat for for a film directed by an actor, I think they're just great films. I've not seen Leatherheads, um, but I've seen the rest of his films, The Eyes of March. Uh, I actually was at the premiere of The Monuments Man because it was the year I was in Berlin, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I can acknowledge it's probably not a good film, but I just had a really great time seeing George and all his pals. You know, <laughs> um, and Suburbicon, yeah, f- oh god, an awful film. From a script by the Coen brothers, no less. Mm-hmm. Truly bad film. Uh, and then The Midnight Sky, which I would not seen either. That one kind of snuck out last year on Netflix. I think he's just like, he. it's clear he takes films that he finds, he's, you know, he takes some projects that he personally finds interesting. Um, and there is a sense about him that it's for him rather than like the rest of the world, which I really admire. God, to be that rich and to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to make some movies with my friends and... Um, if other people enjoy them then that's okay um but yeah I think there is this um gentleness maybe to his filmography it's not really challenging you know anything it's just movies about topics that he's clearly interested in movies that hold some sort of personal significance I think the idea of this is like uh tying into you know his relationship with his own father and um, his own father's kind of career, I think, is a really interesting way in looking at it. Um, and I, you know, God bless him. I hope he keeps going, making these little weird movies, which uh, don't really do anything for me. Just because I, I really, I, you know, I am a Clooney girl at heart. I love the guy and I'm always thrilled to just have him pop up. I wish he was acting more because, I, you know, he was so great in Hail Caesar. And I feel like we've not really... Well, we haven't really seen him apart from Midnight Sky, which I have no interest in watching. Uh, so, yeah, we need, we need to find a good comeback role for Clooney would be my big take after this. Save him for himself. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm a Clooney girl at heart as well. And he, he really is <laughs> quite unique, I suppose, in the sense of he makes personal passion projects. But because of who he is and his contacts, he will get good backing, good cast, and then we'll have usually an out-of-competition festival rollout at a major major international film festival <laughs> um, because of the red carpet that he can command. So he's quite unique in that sense, but I suppose the question is whether we'd rather see him in front of the camera rather than behind it. But let's put some scores on the tender bar. Hannah, I'll come to you first. Um, I think a three in anticipation, just because I did sit through Suburbicon. Um, but, you know, I'm always here for a Ben Affleck movie. Um, enjoyment... Probably a three, just because I really did like the first half, though it did sag so much by the second half. In retrospect, I don't know. I, I'm i kind of torn between a two and a three. I don't think it's like an actively bad movie. I just think it's so kind of underwhelming. I just almost have no opinion on it. Um, no desire to rewatch it. It kind of, as soon as I left, the cinema like vanished from my mind like you know just dust in the wind um so yeah that's not really an answer let's go for three we've already pilloried spider-man so we'll go three 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 camberley um three three two i think um and in anticipation i don't know no frame of reference for this who was jr i don't know (laughs) um um enjoyment um sure it was fine 
uh, early half is charming. Um, the rest is, again, passable. I passed time in the cinema. Um, and then two at the end because, I don't know, I watched this whole movie and, like, who is JR? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the tender bar. Listeners, let us know what you make of that or Spider-Man No Way Home at LWLives on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Up next, we have Film Club with Tokyo Godfathers. In modern-day Tokyo, three homeless people's lives are changed forever when they discover a baby girl on Christmas Eve. As New Year fast approaches, these three forgotten members of society band together to solve the mystery of the abandoned child and the fate of her parents. Along the way, encounters with seemingly unrelated events and people force them to confront their own haunted pasts as they learn to face their future together. I love this film. <laughs> I'm just going to say that up front. Satoshi Kon is a filmmaker who never made a bad film or TV series or anything. And this is just one of those gems. Campbell, please introduce us to the world of Tokyo Godfathers. Yes. Okay. Um, like you, Michael, I'm a massive fan of Satoshi Kon, one of my favourite filmmakers of all time. Um, Tokyo Godfathers is an interesting one in his filmography because of the ways it both corresponds with and stands completely apart from the rest of his work. Um, it, for starters, is has got this sort of ripped from the headlines angle to it in that it was made during a time when homelessness in Japan was becoming, like in Tokyo specifically, was becoming uh, worse and worse. There was like thousands of people living on the streets and not just that, but there was a sort of systemic practice of homeless people being brutalized. Um, so... Um, while this was being ignored, Khan decided that he would make a film about them. Um, I think there's a quote somewhere of him saying, like, um, this film is about people who find a baby in the trash. And I felt like uh, the idea for this film was I would uh, pick up something that people had thrown away. So it pays so much attention to these people, but at the same, like, just with a lot of realistic detail, but at the same time, it's so broadly cartoonish. In a, in a way that a lot of his films aren't. So it brings that fantastical element in from its animation. Um, so it's kind of dealing with a lot of... Um, dealing with a lot of themes that carry over from his other films in that they are um, firmly rooted in the sort of subjective perspective of his characters, um, but at the same time it just feels so different and very alive as mm. a result. Um, yeah, his, his previous two films by this point were Perfect Blue which is one of those anime films which has crossed over into the mainstream, particularly because of the references to it that Darren Aronofsky made in Requiem for a Dream. But then also Millennium Actress, which you wrote about for the website, Cambalay, uh, when, when that had a restoration re-release. And they're both films that are quite experimental in their storytelling structures. And I suppose after that, he wanted to make something a bit more straightforward. Also, there's so much unique aspects, so many unique aspects to this film. You know, there are very few Japanese films in general, but specifically anime films that are set around Christmas. So it's always good for us anime <laughs> fans around Christmas time to say, oh, here's a, yeah, you can watch anime even this time of year. We're still banging the drum for anime, even though it's Christmas. <laughs> and then also it starts to show that he's broadening out to other influences as well, because this is a very loose adaptation of a, a Western 
as in cowboy uh, novella Three Godfathers which was made into a, a western movie in the 1940s or maybe a couple of times I think so very different but very interesting and wonderful in its own way and so last week we had Jake and David swapping films recommending one film to each other this week we actually have the example of Hannah you and Campbell went to see this film <laughs> at the cinema recently how was that yeah it was great we went with um friend of the pod Steph who edits the podcast and um our friend Millicent and I didn't know anything about the film other than Campbell had kind of been recommending it for a, a good long while as he does um he's you know basically the reason i watch any anime is Cambodia. he's uh, really like pushed my like broadened my horizons which is great and i need that because it's not an area that i really know much about but always willing to learn and so we went along just for kind of christmasy little treat at the prince charles uh, had some mulled wine it was a delightful viewing experience but what made it for me was kind of being surrounded by people who were all obviously having exactly the same experience the audience was so into it and there's nothing greater when you're kind of discovering a film for the first time especially a, a rep screening and everyone else in the cinema is clearly loving it as much as you are so it was great to see all these kind of very funny jokes getting the kind of response that you would hope for from an audience and I just really enjoyed seeing an anime film which there are kind of elements of like um magical realism within the film but it's very grounded in reality and I think oftentimes when I watch things like Studio Ghibli films um which is really you know that's my kind of um for, and I think it's probably the same for a lot of people that's their big you know that's the big portion of anime that they watch it's very kind of fantastical so it was really nice for me to see a film that's actually quite grounded in reality there are all these ideas about fate and um the kind of um not quite this, but that Japanese theory of the red string of fate that kind of ties you to other people and to, to your destiny. And I think um, there's a kind of element of that going on in the film. Um, and the way they kind of go set off on this journey, but it brings them into kind of close proximity with all these people from their past. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed seeing this more kind of grounded take. And I really just loved seeing the dynamic between the um, little central trio, they all kind of play off each other so wonderfully and make this really like um, believable, but also incredibly funny uh, dysfunctional family. And I'm always here for like a Christmas dysfunctional family vibe. Um, but yeah, I was really, really enamored with it and very grateful to Cambalet for um, introducing me to it because it really does feel like this is a new kind of festive favorite for me I think it's um such a lovely film and so sweet and has some kind of really um salient points to make about how we choose family and how it's kind of never too late to make up with your family if that's what you choose to do and I think it is just a really lovely and sympathetic film it really kind of um goes out of its way I think to show the humanity of all the kind of characters in the story even the ones who kind of I think seem a little less sympathetic at first I think the film really makes an effort to kind of explain to you why people are the way they are and why things have kind of turned out the way they have and yeah I was just really taken with it I think it's such a great film it's um I think it's also a really great way of looking at um it's it's basically looking at this sort of homelessness issue from around the time and obviously something still pervasive and saying like, why are such people 
like why aren't these people worthy of our attention as well and it sort of t- takes place um it's funny because his last two films are focused on like celebrity and is the and people struggling with the spotlight um and isolates them because of that so it's a millennium actress is about an actress who retreated from her career and is kind of living as a hermit and these two documentary makers go and find her and they revisit her past and it's all like crazy editing and stuff like that perfect blue is about um an idol who is struggling with um fan possessiveness uh over her decision to move on from her idol group and become an actress but then tokyo godfathers is about people who are very much situated out of that spotlight and deals with what happens to people when they are completely ignored rather than when uh, people are sort of intensely scrutinized to the point of it ruining their lives. Instead, like you have these people kind of navigating these back alleys and you'll see them on public transport and everyone sort of just like veers away from them. Or um, you'll have just all of these different circumstances like where people will just be completely anonymous. Um, And you'll see uh, them sort of look at the paths not taken and sort of what could happen to them like you'll see uh one character Jin basically encounters three different mirrors of himself one of which is uh maybe the film's funniest and maybe darkest gag in that he encounters uh another homeless man who is um who he takes back to his tent and he um the guy's just like I always thought I'd be I would die drunk and surrounded by my family now I'm halfway there (laughs) (laughs) and then it has this moment when uh, the, a gag that I need to note went down just in like gangbusters in the cinema where he uh, sort of takes this long breath out and then you think he's dead. And then um, <laughs> and then Jin goes to close his eyes and then the guy just kind of like suddenly takes a breath in and then just like <laughs> yells and jumps back. And it's just absolutely hysterical. So it's um, Con dealing with um, kind of this underlying darkness that has been and this darkness and a different kind of loneliness than has been in his other films, but he's also dealing with it with a larger sense of humour than ever before. And also dealing with it um, with an ensemble in a way that sort of, again, um, continues something that was being started in Millennium Actress. Um, I um, sort of came to it when I first saw it like, uh, oh, well, this is a surprisingly normal one, I guess. And then you kind of finish it just being like, I can't believe I ever thought this was the normal one because it takes... <laughs> these very real people and puts them in the most loopy circumstances and while doing that animates them like more broadly cartoonish than he's ever done like Mm -hmm. i feel like when in anime especially when you are um going for very broad expression you'll have these kind of very cartoony and very simple drawings and so you can let faces go as broad as possible but this film kind of just lets that happen on a normal human face so you'll have people's like jaws kind of stretched to like unreal amounts but not so much that it kind of breaks any kind of physicality so it's got this really strange halfway point between realism and just like this real zaniness it's particularly the character of hannah isn't it that that, that her face is just a wonderful uh, piece of animation the way that it warps and changes all the way through just so wonderfully expressive I suppose, oh gosh, this is such a strong recommendation and it's such a good Christmas movie. It's not just set at Christmas, it does have all of those elements of wisdom and themes 
uh, that we like to see in good Christmas films. The fabulistic quality, you know, like like a good Christmas Carol type story. It's all in here. I suppose, Campbell, before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out to Keiko Nobumoto, who was the co-writer of this yes. film. And she died very recently. Do you want to tell us who she is and what she brought to this project? So Keiko Nobumoto is... Um a screenwriter in the anime industry who has had her hands in some of the most um, prolific uh, anime of all time. Um, her one early one, Macross Plus, was her first collaboration with um, Shinichiro Watanabe, one that helped like OVA's original video animation sort of carry over in their sort of viability through the 80, from the 80s through to the 90s. It was so like it was pretty major, and Macross, her, she put her own spin on Macross that she would later kind of carry, the, an anti-capitalistic take that she would carry through to her next work with the same director, Jinichiro, on Cowboy Bebop, which is a monumental work in introducing anime to Western audiences even today. If you say to some, if someone asks you what anime should I watch first, chances are the person they're asking will tell them to watch Cowboy Bebop. Um, Keiko uh, worked on a number of different things with Shinichiro, like um, she worked on his later show, Samurai Champloo and Space Dandy. And um, I think, and she created her own series, Wolf's Reign. And this is all very fantasy based, but Tokyo Godfathers um, marked an outlier for her as well as um, Satoshi Kon in that it was her first non sort of mm-hmm. science fiction uh, show. And I think with it, she brought a humanist angle that she brought to all of her work cowboy bebop is immensely interested in um the small details of its characters lives but they're sort of kept hidden right out of view um it's interested in how the systems uh in that too it's interested in how systems like uh keep them in this sort of wheel of adversity um she was just a really phenomenal writer and the qualities that she brought to tokyo godfathers are kind of like undeniable there's a lot of stuff in it that's very her in that sort of uh, winking humour that she brings to these dire circumstances in the humanity with which she treats all of these characters. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's you know such a good rebuke to the whole auteur theory that we sometimes ascribe certain anime filmmakers with, and Satoshi Kon being one of those, but he very much says in interviews that when he made Go- Tokyo Godfathers, he not only wanted to challenge himself in terms of this more expressive animation, but also realising that this script would be more character-based and ensemble-based and have to talk about the social world of the real world. He wanted to bring in Keiko Nobumoto to help shape an ensemble rather than the past where he was very much within certain characters' heads. And uh, So yeah, her, her, her um, contribution to this film is absolutely undeniable, as you say, Campbellet. That is Tokyo Godfather's listeners. Um, if you've watched it before, we recommend watching it again. If you've not, it's a treat waiting for you under the Christmas tree this year. I will make a very quick plug to uh, my other podcast, Ghibli Attack, where we did a mini-series all about the films of Satoshi Kon, and we went in-depth on Tokyo Godfather's. If you wanted to hear more, uh, th- that's there waiting for you as well. It's just arrived on Netflix in the UK, Tokyo Godfather's, so it's there waiting for you if you want to watch it. And that's it for our episode this week. Listeners, let us know what you make of any of the films we talked about this week at the usual channels. Email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Campbell A. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. Next week, we have one more film to discuss before 2022 rolls around. That is Titan. 
and we'll also be looking back at Little White Lies best films of 2021. Listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod, and if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you to leave one for us as well. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Campbell A. Campbell. The podcast is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel and is edited by Steph Watts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.